Richards Bowie Versus Tillian Is this year when I'm glowy Am I killing? I hope it's not a blowy Or a villain It's time for Bowie versus Dylan. Hello there, and welcome to Bowie versus Dylan. Hey, I'm Charlie, and I like Bowie. And I'm Jake, and I love Dylan. Today we're talking about the year 1983 in our endless series of podcasts to determine history's greatest question. Who's better, David Bowie or Bob Dylan? Charlie, I believe you have the floor for 1983. Well, let me start out by telling you, Jake, that uh, Bowie is going to demolish Dylan in 1983. I want you to know that I I don't care. You don't care? I I, I thought about writing a series of devastating put-downs that punned on different like Bowie versus Dylan tropes. In, uh, in, a, in an attempt to demoralize and destroy you right at the beginning of this podcast. I got as far as Dylan's going to be blowing in the wind when Bowie blows him away and realize this is an awful idea and I stopped. So I would like you, I'm wondering if, if you could do something for me, Jake. Could you just pretend that I just gave you like a series of unbelievable trash talk okay. and let, leaving you just crushed, withered, and the only possible recourse is either to start crying yeah. or say, oh, snap, no, you didn't. Uh, okay. One of those two for me. All right. Will you say the put down again? Uh, Dylan's going to be blowing in the wind when Bowie blows him away. Oh. Right. That now, hurt, bro. I feel like I'm, I've, been, I've been the zone now. I'm ready to go. All right. Do it. So, okay. 1983. Now, we're this is our first podcast in the 80s. Ooh. Universally decreed to be the worst decade for both of our gentlemen. By far. By far. Now, 83 is a year in which Bowie still had, like, a little bit of artistic integrity left, just just barely. A smidge. But, okay, 1983 was the year that Bowie conquered the world. He, like, he was a big star in the 70s, but then he became, like, the biggest star. Or, you know, like, it's like he, he's, like, hanging out with Michael Jackson. I don't know if he's physically hanging, but, you know, in that <laughs> stratosphere. I don't know if yeah. they actually were together. I'm sure they met at some point. They had to have. But, you know, Thriller and Let's Dance, those were the, the, you know, he was, like, the wedding with Tina Turner and stuff, like, who apparently he her career comeback was owed to Bowie, but that's a story for another What's time. What's love got? So, he was, he released Let's Dance, which is his best-selling album of all time. A lot of people might think it's like, I don't know, Ziggy Stardust or something. No, no. It's Let's Dance, Jake. Let's Dance. Well, shall we? Let's Dance. Let's see here. It was released in April. Uh, I don't know how far. It went number one. Uh, at the same year, this is like Bowie's little examples of how conquering of the world he was. Uh, he got a new label, and his new label reissued his old albums. So he ended up at one point, he had 10 albums in the UK top 100 at Holy the same time. Holy buckets, are you serious? And ended up, because of those 10 albums in there at the same time, he ended up with uh, 198 individual album weeks on the top 100 in a single year. Wow. Because they're concurrent, he has more, four times the number of weeks that there are there are, there are weeks in the actual year. That's intense. And his album from that year didn't come out until April, so you know, there's like stuff happening before then. It's unbelievable. Apparently, it's the second highest of all time. Yeah. I think it's, for some reason, Dire Straits has the number one. I'm not really what? sure how it happened, but yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was a couple years later. Uh, 
Yeah, it was amazing. So he, he released Let's Dance in April. He toured the Serious Moonlight Tour from May through December. He, uh, he played a show at the U.S. Festival somewhere in California to an audience of 150,000 people. Ooh, daddy, those are like Bruce Springsteen numbers. a show numbers. of 150,000 people. Wow. I don't even know how, like, how do you even do that. That's twice the size of the city I live in, which is a good-sized city. Like, yeah. It's just craziness to me. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, he was dancing all over the place. So much dancing. So, <laughs> so much sweet, he danced. sweet dancing. He, uh, <laughs> let's see here. Let's back things up. He was in four movies that year. Uh, two of them were cameos, but two of them were starring roles. He was in The Hunger, which we'll talk a little bit more later on. Uh-huh. Um, I'm going to whet your appetite by describing it in two words. Those two words are sexy vampires. Oh, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Take a shower. The other one was, uh, <laughs> take a shower in blood. <laughs> uh, Vampiric blood. <laughs> the other one was Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which is a little, or little to do with Christmas. The makes it sound, it, it was actually like an intense uh, POW World War II drama. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. But the title wouldn't suggest that. He was in a movie called Yellow Bird Beard, which had a bunch of the people from Monty Python, but in spite of which sounds like it was pretty terrible. I didn't watch it. I only watched his cameo. Great. And he was in a TV movie called The Snowman, <laughs> and apparently a much-cherished, much-beloved British tradition to play it around Christmas time. Okay. So we had all that happening. Wow. He, uh, yeah, he went on a gigantic tour. He released an archival live album, Ziggy Stardust, The Motion Picture, which is 10 years, it was, the show was 10 years old. It was his famous final concert for the, uh, the Ziggy Stardust tour, which he announced he was going to retire yeah. on stage to the surprise of most of his band. Including a Mick. And we had sweet, sweet Mick Ronson was oh, there. Mick he was, back? So he was, Mick's back for this show in two different occurrences. We'll get to the other one in just a second. Oi, Mick. So Mick Ronson. Welcome back, lead. Mick. His lead guitar hit all over Ziggy Stars the Motion Picture, which released as not only an archival live album, but also as an archival live movie. And fun factoid for you, the Dylan fan in my life, uh, <laughs> that Ziggy Stars the Motion Picture, the movie version, was directed by Don Pennebaker. Oh. Who directed Don't Look Back. Yeah, no kidding. It's some Dylan documentary that I have not seen. That's that, probably you know, the greatest. The factoid. It's one of the greatest music documentaries ever made. All right. Well, the, uh, the the factoid I came was specifically mentioning how it wasn't as good as Dylan's Don't Look Back. Not so, many not many things are considered to be so. as good. I mean, I, 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 from what I've seen of it, it was like, it was decent, but not amazing. Yeah. We'll talk more about that later, too. We will. All right. What else do we got here? So that was Sweet Sweet Ronson. Let's get Sweet Sweet Ronson uh, version or uh, mention number two. So going back to the tour, the Serious Moonlight tour, uh, he was all went all over the world, just everywhere, and just like gigantic concerts ever. It sold out all over the place. It was the most profitable tour for the year. Uh, let's see. When he was in, I think it was Toronto. Apparently, Mick Ronson was living in Toronto at the time. If I'm getting the city right, which I might not, because I didn't take a note on that one. But How dare they you. had patched it up, they talked or something. Mick Ronson came down to the show, got his axe out of hock, and uh, <laughs> just noodled all over a couple tracks, apparently. Just ripped it up. Just ripped it up like old times. Pretty sweet. Pretty sweet. Apparently, he was. He, he said he was thrashing like crazy. Yeah. Because uh, the normal guitarist, camera was guitarist on that tour. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Who cares? But apparently, the guy let... Mick Ronson borrowed his guitar 
and there had been a lot of guitar solos. So Rob's like, I'm not going to do a guitar solo. I'm just going to thrash it like crazy. Which he did. <laughs> but apparently it was the other guy's prize guitar, like, you know, his, his baby Joy. But, I mean, I mean, yeah, he named it's it like Joy. the girl's name. Oh, he probably named it something, yeah. And he was standing by watching Ronson just sling this thing all over the place. Oi, Mick, and, that's Gloria, uh, Mick. <laughs> Oi, Mick, come Mick. on. What are you, what are you doing? Mick. I, don't even think, I think the guy was American. Oh, well, he probably <laughs> still matter. talked like that. <laughs> Probably most guitar players do. Absolutely. His also his name was I can't remember who it was, but his name was not Mick. That's. I don't that's, think it was Carlos Alomar. I think it was somebody else. Well, let's just can we can we I'm call him? Come to be, can we call him Mick? later on? I was going to shout it. Okay. Just in the middle of whatever you're talking about, just shout the guy's name. I'm going to hate you. So then. then the other thing we got going on in this tour is is it was recorded for a, another live video. So one show in there was recorded by David Mallet, who's been, who's been doing all of Bowie's videos at the time, and just, like all the really good ones with the like, ashes to ashes and all that stuff. And uh, he recorded it, and they totally like worked this thing out to be the ultimate. They scoured, apparently some people involved with the film scoured the audience to find uh, luscious ladies and put them in the front row. So kind of sexist, but you know, sure. that's what you do when you're making an 80s live music video. Let's dance. Let's dance. Let's dance. So the other thing about Bowie is he was at the very peak of his superstardom, just completely unbelievably up there. Let's dance, China Girl. Uh, the three big singles were Let's Dance, China Girl, and Modern Love yeah. on every radio station for the next 10 years. Yep. Uh, but he was actually still kind of keeping it real. And I'd like to, you know, just make sure that we know that about Bowie at the time. <laughs> yeah. Because he actually was mostly clean maybe entirely clean it's kind of debatable but basically clean and had been for a few years uh-huh. so he was like had changed his persona to this kind of uh like likable clean-cut dad guy yeah it's kind of weird because <laughs> bowie was you know it was bowie and he went from it was such a transition this year i mean his last albums before that were his crazy berlin period the most experimental albums he ever made yeah. And then he went into, he took a three year break between albums, which was by far the longest he'd ever gone between albums yeah. up to that point. And I think it's the second longest he's ever gone between albums, like through the end of his life. Wow. I think. It's really close. There might be other ones. There's okay. other ones that are three years, I don't know, like down to the months, which we're looking at. And he came back with this glossy pop sheen, let's dance, with, you know, a reasonable haircut. He's wearing pastel suits and just dancing all over the place. I have a question. Dancing right into America's heart is what he was doing. I have a question. Yeah. Did he attempt superstardom? Like, was this his plan? Was to like just blow up and be huge? Yes, I think it probably was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, get we'll get more into Let's Dance, but he didn't. Let's Dance. It was his first album he ever released where he played no instruments whatsoever. Oh. He just sang. And he wrote all the songs, and according to what I've read, he, the, the producer was Niles Rogers. Yep, I know him. Who was from the band Chic. Yep. As in, like, freak out! He's a, he's a legendary producer. Freak out! Yeah, he was pretty young to producing at the time. Okay. But, yes, he's kind of legendary now. Um, according to both Bowie and Niles Rogers, it was kind of more of Niles Rogers' album. Yeah. Like Bowie wrote the songs, and Niles Rogers produced it, he arranged it. Bowie sat on the couch and wrote some lyrics and stuff. So there was that, and then sang and danced. He was probably just in the background dancing all the time. He's the really it was probably like rallying the the, uh, the musicians and stuff. I like to assume. Sure. Um, but I do want you know Bowie was like he was still he was using his superstar because he did he. I think 
going back to your question about him uh, him planning it, I think he was. Because he, uh, he was in a new label and stuff. He, his last four albums, although uh, Scary Monsters had done all right. But the Brilliant Trilogy did not do very well right. financially. You know, like, there weren't big hits. You know, the big hits we think of now, like Sound and Vision and Heroes, were not giant hits at the time. Right. Those were, those were later on. Um, and so he was pretty aware that he needed a new a hit for his new label and everything. He could use the money, all that stuff. He'd gone through this big, messy, like, label divorce before that and all that stuff. Uh, which is where the, the Ziggy Stars, the motion picture comes in. That was supposed to be the old label release that we didn't really want did. them to. Because, you know, it's all those. Oh, yeah. But he was he was keeping it real. He was working on, he was really uh, being, like, forward about some different views, especially about different cultures. And so this is significant that he was actually, like, being culturally aware and saying stuff, important stuff. So, for instance, he's got three videos. One of them, Modern Love video, is just, you know, a, a live video, which, you know, whatever. Those are, you know. It could have been weird. something else. And then, but Let's Dance and China Girl were both really about, like, cultural imperialism and colonialism, and uh, Let's Dance was filmed in this tiny town in the Australian outback. Okay. And there's all these, there's a bunch of aboriginal actors involved with it who were uh, rejecting different white western attitudes, particularly symbolized in the form of red shoes. Which are from the lyrics too. Okay. Put on your red shoes and dance the blues. Na 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 Let's dance like that. I like it. I, my, this is my cover version. That's beautiful. Beautiful. I'm sure it's gonna go number one too. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure. So he was saying stuff like that, and I also found this amazing MTV interview, which I'm not sure was ever broadcast. It was obviously filmed before he had re- released Let's Dance, probably a couple months before, because it didn't. The album didn't have an official title yet. And he couldn't tell the official, like, track list yet. They were still figuring all that out. And uh, so they were talking about it and what he was doing and, you know, him being in a different, completely persona because he had not moved into the full Let's Dance persona yet. But he asked the the uh, interviewer if he could ask a couple questions at the end. Like, he asked very politely. And the guy's like, oh, sure, if we have time, you know, we will. And so they get to the end of the interview and then it keeps going. And, and Bowie's like, okay, so can I, I mean, can I ask my questions? He's like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. He's just straight out was like, so uh, why doesn't MTV play more videos by black artists? Oh, nice. Like, just slams them. I remember hearing like, this. Oh, he very, he's very slick about it. Yeah. But basically what it came down to is MTV is popular in the suburbs, and suburban people don't like what play, like, don't like black people. Right. <laughs> basically what he was hedging around saying. Yeah. And he, and he looks at Bowie, and Bowie's just like, yep, well, that's kind of what I figured, but uh, and Bowie's not being a jerk at all. He's no. Not. He's being completely I, I like, remember hearing about the that. Gentleman. And, um, and so he gets, you know, the guy asks, you know, so, so do you, you get what you, and he keeps like, trying to bring Bowie in this, you know, like, they might not be, like, understandable, you know, like, like you or me, you know, might, like, like, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, the the Isley Brothers, like nice relevant yeah, uh, reference there in 1983, bud. But okay, all right, cool, cool. <laughs> and uh, oh, they did mention Prince, to be fair. Yeah, they might be freaked out by Prince. Like, okay, well, Prince is freaky, so you know, there's that. But, also hugely you know, popular. Oh, hugely popular. And so we asked Bowie. Uh, so you you get you you get what I'm saying? You know, you get you get my reasoning here. It's like <laughs> Bowie just looks at me like. Oh, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> and the camera, the cameraman, who was completely—I don't know if the camera was on Bowie's side or whatever—like zooms in on Bowie, and you're like, "Nice." Yeah, we all know exactly. What's we know going what you're saying. <laughs> it was amazing. So, 
Bowie way to ask MTV about you know the tough questions here. Yeah, no kidding. Keep it. It real. was quite a year. Like this is just like a big blow up year. He went from being this not underground because he was a huge star too, but this kind of like cult figure, you know, artsy guy. Yeah. To this giant mammoth. I mean, he sold out so hard. I don't know. You know, I can't think of an artist who sold out quite to that level. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I can't think of like a. a a parallel. Well, I'll tell you a parallel, and it happened the, actually the next year. I mean, this all okay. the '80s were like, you know, a commercial, a commercial explosion or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I know it's a weird comparison, but uh, Bruce Springsteen did almost the exact same thing okay. in 1984 with "Born in the USA." He had right. Well, he had he had these great critically receptive albums. He was a yep. star since like 1978. Sure. And then he released this really hushed, quiet album called um, Nebraska, which is Nebraska. Is that the one that he recorded entirely in a apartment or something? Like yep, locked himself in an apartment for two weeks or on something a, on a Ford track. Yeah, um, one of the first albums ever to be recorded on one of those. Um, and it was great wow. critically, but it did not sell. And yeah. then all of a sudden, he was like, "Well, I'm just going to be the biggest star in the world," and he just blew up. He did it. Yep, man. So there's your parallel. Third parallel. Bowie covered Bruce Springsteen a few times. I don't think any of them officially released at the oh, time. Oh, man, that's, that's interesting. Bowie loved, uh, what's the first one? Asbury Park Live. What, what's that? What's that? I think it's uh, Springsteen's first album. I'm not a Springsteen fan, I'll admit. But yeah. That's greetings right, from though. Asbury Park, New Jersey, something like that. That's you know it. What I'm talking about? That's it. Yeah, yeah okay. first album. Got it. 1973. Anyway, Bowie attempted covers of three of those songs at different times in the 70s, I think. So, go there. All right. I got one more last Bowie thing. <laughs> okay. We need to do the year in Bowie's hair. Oh, story. yes. Can't wait. A recurring feature. I feel like I need some theme music. And the uh, best thing I could come up with is uh, the musical hair. You know, there's a song, Give me a head with hair. <laughs> long, beautiful <laughs> hair. I don't know why I'm singing everything in the false center right now, but I am. Okay. That's important. Because you're dancing. So I'm wondering, Jake, if you could just knock out a quick cover version of that in the style of David Bowie. Okay. Right now? Yeah, right now. Hey, man, we got long, beautiful hair, man, long, beautiful hair. <laughs> All right, that was kind of insulting to David Bowie, but that's okay, we're going to go with it. Yeah, you asked for it. So, 1983, the year in Bowie's hair. So Bowie went bleach blonde. Ooh, baby. For the serious, oh, oh, baby. <laughs> for the serious Moonlight Tour. He did not have it in that earlier MTV oh, music yeah. video, or MTV interview. He went bleach blood, short sides and back with this like curled up, probably perm ish. And yeah. it wasn't that tight, you know, this like curly top, like oh, this yeah. boyish, you know. The guy's like 35 at the time, let's keep in mind. Uh, 36, <laughs> I should say. Always so he's going this like really young, boyish look. And uh, yeah. So what do you give it? And just dancing his way into everyone's hearts, wearing pastel suits. Yeah. And like schoolboy ties and. Somehow it kind of works. I'm going to be honest, it kind of works. I kind of like okay. it. I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to give it on the... Because there's the two different scales. There's the one through five scale for Bowie's hair. For Bowie, it's a pretty good haircut. I'm going to give it a four. All right. For the average American, with the blonde, we're going to go with a two. Without blonde, we'll bump it up to a three. Okay. So like a 2.5 2, 2, 2. So. or two? <laughs> <laughs> this is important. Two, two for him. Well... For Bowie, it was a four. Yeah. For the average American, it was a two. Yeah, I get it. Okay, two, two. Okay, well, thank you. You know, I think the other theme music for Bowie's hair should just be like, <laughs> 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 
Well, did I haven't you, even invented the feature yet. Did you it's give? Oh, so you didn't give it a. You know, why don't you give it a score? I didn't, why don't you give it, it a would, score I, right now? I would give it a five. I would give it a five for seventy-six. What about for the average American? For the average American, we'll go. We'll go four. Wow. I know. Well, you know. Doing well. Yeah. Yeah. Doing well. So that was Bowie's mammoth year, steamrolling over whatever the heck Dylan was doing. Wow. And uh, whatever Dylan just sucks. That's the end. Go. I just want to tell you, in the in the spirit <laughs> yes. of repaying good with or evil with good, because you just are just <laughs> so a little combative today. You're so smug today. You're so I smug. I'm very smug. Well, it's it's Bowie eighty three. Bowie eighty three. I know. Smug. And I'm eating just, I'm eating a big I'm pile a, of dirty sneakers this year. I get it. <laughs> I'm just gonna try to emulate whatever Bowie was like in that year. So. You're just Minnesota like, man, I'm, I'm be, the biggest star in the world, man. I'm going to be on a huge amount of cocaine the next time we do the mid-70s. Just, you know, prepare for that. Are you sure you're not on that cocaine right now? No, I'm drunk. You're really drunk. That's what Boy was like in 83. Oh, okay, great. I, I just, don't know how drunk he was in 83. He was drunk later, later on. You know what? Why don't he you... was re- reasonably clean. He had requirements for Hey, I forgot to mention something oh, totally no. sweet. I'm sorry, Jake, but not totally sweet. I just need to give you three giant words. Yeah. The three giant words are Stevie Ray Vaughan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Forgot about that. <laughs> but we discovered Stevie Ray Vaughan. Okay, but Put did him on Let's Dance? Did he or did Niles Rogers? No, Bowie did. Okay, Bowie did. He heard him at uh, was South by Southwest a thing? I feel like it was South by Southwest. I don't know if that was a thing yet. He saw him at some concert in Texas, wherever it was, and was like, "Hey, this dude needs to be on my next album." I can't do a Bowie's accent very well. No, and so he was, can. and so there was like this, you know, Neil blues guitarist just bluesing, you know. Ripping up bluesy solos all over this shiny dance pop. And he did it. And Steve uh, was supposed to go on the Serious Moonlight tour with them. But he didn't at the last... Like, they were literally at the airport. Bowie wasn't there. Bowie was somewhere else at the time. But the rest of the band was literally at the airport after rehearsals about to leave. And uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan's agent was like, hey, give this guy more money. He's really worth it. He's really great. Yeah. And uh, they said no. <laughs> Oh, oh. <laughs> so Stevie Ray is just like okay. sitting there with his suitcases and did not get on the plane and go with him and they got a different guitarist. That's a crazy story. That is a crazy story and it's true. Uh, I think his name should be Mickey Ravon. Mickey Ravon. Why Mickey? Oh, because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you got it. You I got it. Boom, there Mickey. it is. It should be all mixed, wall to wall. <laughs> all mixed. Earl Slick was the name of the guitarist, by the way. Thank you for screaming it now instead of later. Earl Slick! Earl Mick, we should say. Earl Mick. <laughs> Mickey Ravon and Earl Mick. <laughs> Earl Mick. All right, sorry for derailing oh, whatever it was. Darn it, Charlie. Go! Just go! I, I don't even think I can you anymore. Like over the earth, just like Bowie. I just want you to know that you have been talking for two hours. <laughs> Is that all? <laughs> That's it. All right. To let's dance three times. I just I've been trying to tell you this for the last three minutes for for reals. <laughs> Let me tell Don't you something. <laughs> I know you're gonna care though. My favorite, my favorite Bowie song I think is Modern Love. Your favorite? What, I love that song. Yeah. Okay. I I like that song. It's definitely my favorite of those three singles. But Jake. Yeah. You can do better. You can do better. 
I can do better by my standards of Bowie fandom, which I, that just song just catches me right, baby. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's a good song. I'm not saying it's not. I love but. it. I used to, uh, quick story, I, I used to do DJing at my college radio station. Everybody could. Yeah. It's not like. I, yeah, I remember you talking about that. It was so much fun. I Literally the best time I've ever had in my entire life. Uh, wow. Well, okay, I don't Sorry, know. Sorry, your wife. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I and played. Children. Three beautiful children. They are gorgeous children. I don't blame myself for that, though. I think that's. I think that's also my wife. Oh, obviously. Clearly, um, I played modern, modern love on the radio. You know, at least once, and somebody, you know, looked at me. Somebody cooler than I was looked at me like I was growing three heads out of my out of my head for playing like an eighties <laughs> Bowie song on air. Eighties Bowie's about. There's one 80s Bowie song you're going to play. It's going to be that one or Absolute Beginners. It's about all. It's I don't even know choice. what that one the is. The list begins and ends with, with that. I want to go out. I love that song. Okay. Uh, Charlie, I want you to picture yourself. <laughs> we did this bit every single show. The year. I, will, I picture myself. I was alive in 1983, so I can't picture myself in 1983. Yeah, but you're not picturing yourself in 1983. You're oh, picturing okay. yourself right. in 1997. <laughs> I did that last time. What? <laughs> Was that last show? Yeah, last show that was last show. I just want you to bear with me because there's some parallels here that I, I will try to explain <laughs> okay, briefly. Picture, picture yourself. You you are a Dylan super fan, okay? Uh-huh. I want no, you this to, is you. Yeah, I know, but I'm pic- you're picturing okay, yourself all right, all right, all right. Good, as good, a Dylan super it. fan. Okay, and every yep, album imagining. that Dylan puts out is a meal. Okay, yum, okay? yum. Yum, yum. The good ones are good for you. And fulfilling, and the bad ones, you know, make you gag a little bit in your mouth. Mm-hmm. So you are starving in 1980s, 1997, excuse me. Okay. It has been years since you have had any albums at all of original material. In the 80s, it was just a big pile of rancid dog poop. You were just eating uh-huh. the worst things. Uh-huh. You know, you'd, you'd basically, you'd, you had stopped eating altogether, pretty much. In 1989, okay. you... Rather than eat that slop? Yep. You ate okay. Oh Mercy in 1989, and it was actually a pretty good meal, and you were surprised. <laughs> However, the next year... It's making me uncomfortable. The next, <laughs> the next year, uh, Under the Red Sky, the follow-up to Oh Mercy, made you throw up Oh Mercy. It was so bad. <laughs> so you lost all that nutrition. It was gone. And uh, in, the, in the early 90s, there were some acoustic cover albums, which were decent. You know, these are kind of like, yeah. like little snacks. But then, you know, you're just you're just really hungry, man. And in 1997, get to time out of mind already because I know where this is going. In 1997, you get to time out of mind as right, right. you have not figured out yet, and you eat this, and it's like an opulent buffet. It's so delicious, you can't stop eating it. In fact, in fact, the last song, which is 13, 14 minutes long, which everyone else thinks is too long, you're just savoring those sweet, sweet words. <laughs> They're so delicious to you, uh-huh. and you're full. And uh, and you've been you've been pretty satisfied ever since. 1983 was supposed to be that year. Okay. Because it had been apparently forever since he had had a decent album. Now back then time <laughs> time sped up, you know, and uh, well, the or time slowed down. Or two a year, you know. Right. There were more expectations. So you actually album, it had actually only been about seven years since you had had the delicious meal, but. It had also, um, you were also annoyed as a Dylan superfan to the point of almost giving up on him with the Christian trilogy, which Dylan Dylan gave up in 1982. He stopped touring. Um, His last album, Shot of Love, was sort of, kind of a a departure from the hardcore 
Christian trilogy. Okay. Okay. Um, and you, as a critic and as a Dylan super fan, you thought that Infidels, which is Dylan's 1983 album, was just right. was was that opulent buffet. Because it sounded different and had different sorts of points of view. So you thought you thought this after listening to it or before listening to it? This was its reputation. Okay. At the time, and I want to say that although there are some interesting things on there, which I will talk about later, uh, it is not the opulent, delicious buffet (laughs) that Time Out of Mind was. I'm just saying that people wanted it to be that really badly. People wanted Dylan back in the worst way. They were so hungry, Charlie. Yeah. So no, I you know we will get into uh, that with with Bowie in the early '90s. Exactly. It's and when people had reached that, that zone of, of every album was the best album from it since Scary Monsters. Everyone said that over that's and That's right. And this was every <laughs> every album is the best album since Blood on the Tracks for Dylan. Right. Um, so he started out the year um, looking to be popular. He wanted to get back in the game. This was the thing. This is what everybody was doing. Yeah. And so somewhere... Dylan... Dylan wanted to be successful at this, and so he, this is the first time since he had, you know, since the early 60s probably, where he attempted to respond to the culture and the times of music rather than sort of dictating it. So he making it bend to his will. Exactly. And so he attempted a contemporary sound, He Uh he went into a rock and roll studio like a normal rock and roll musician. Now, Jake, who was his first choice for producer of this album? I want you to shut up he for a second. He said conspicuously. I'm going to get to that. Will you let me tell the story? <laughs> of a Pete. Uh, apparently not. At the end of 1982, and this is something you probably don't know, he went... I was born in the end of 1982. This is not about you. At the end of okay, 19... 19- <laughs> oh, what if he asked all these people on your birthday? That would have been crazy. Oh, man, that would be totally sweet. All right. But he we probably may have been rec- they may have been recording Let's Dance demos on my birthday, by the way. Oh. I don't know. He was in the studio at that time. Well, let's dance to that. I will. I'm dancing all over the place. The I'm end of 1982, Dylan went casting about, and uh, he asked a series of uh, popular gentlemen in the rock and roll community. <laughs> let's, uh-huh. let's call them. Uh, one was, I believe, an obscure... Jewish musician named David Bowie. Have you heard of this? this David man? Bowie! Yeah! <laughs> Bowie! More Bowie! More Bowie! Bowie said no. I know. What I, an album that would have been. It probably would have stung, but what a way to go. It would have been amazing. Those well, two right now, I know. it would have been awful. It would have been but amazing. man, I wish it had happened. Yeah, well, it, it might as well. It would have been like. the crux of this entire podcast. Dylan's album couldn't have been a lot worse, you know, with Bowie was <laughs> we're, we're at the controls. Bowie didn't care enough to produce or control anything. He didn't produce his own album, let alone somebody else's. <laughs> yeah, he didn't even he he wasn't even on the album except for his voice. Except for his voice, yeah. So anyway, I still wish that it happened. Just even just for the train wreck value. All right, who else was up? It was after Bowie. Uh, you know, I don't. Out. I don't know the order. I just know the gentleman. Um, okay. Frank Zappa. Which yeah. That would have been. That would have been interesting. Uh, was Frank Zappa like popular at the time? Was he ever popular? He was popular in the late sixties. I mean, he was. He was a cult figure. Yeah, I mean, I know he was. Like that. Just it didn't seem to flow with the other. No, but he was doing. Choices. Zappa was a Zappa was a very uh, studio wizard. So I wonder if that was why. Okay. He okay. went in there and he... he I suppose, because Bo- Bowie wasn't, like, a hit yet. Like, this was... He would have asked him before Let's Dance came out. Right. Right. So he came off of a bunch of not very 
you know, very critically acclaimed, but not very successful. Yeah, so I guess these guys weren't, like, gigantic or anything at the time. Uh, Elvis Costello was another. Elvis Costello, but he would have been huge at the time. He would have been huge at the time. Um, Although, probably not, like, hugely, you know... And Costello, I, I think I just Costello, I think sure. just didn't want to want to go in with that with Dylan. I don't, and I don't know why. I'm okay. not sure it wasn't a mean reason or anything like that. Yeah, both of them had pretty giant egos. Exactly, it could have been an, quite an explosion. That's what I'm saying. And then the last was Rick Okasek from the Cars. <laughs> oh, I did not hear that. And one. they were huge. I heard then. the other three in doing earlier research about our two guys. But yeah, I did not hear Rick Okasek. Yeah, he that was in there. Interesting, also. He was in one of my four biographies that I'm now reading simultaneously. Um, so he went in with a band. So who, who actually did it then? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> that would be important to know. Mark Knopfler <laughs> from, the, from Dire Straits. Oh, from Dire Straits. Okay, yep. so he did finally nail, like, nail one of these guys. He found a white guy that was reasonably popular. Yep. Okay, at the that time. seemed to be the goal. And Knopfler also played all over the album, just like just noodled and did his Dire Straits thing all over the place. Okay. Um, they recorded throughout the very, you know, throughout the beginning of 1983. Apparently, they really worked hard on this thing. Like Dylan okay. was, he wanted that slick kind of contemporary sound. Yep. He hired a Mick. He hired Mick Taylor. We have a Mick. <laughs> yes. Yes, we have a real Mick. We don't even so have to make it up. Success, it was not a success even with a Mick on the album. Well, I'm going to get to... I can't believe it. I won't believe it. I'm going to get to the varying successes. I had a hard time ranking this album, and you'll you'll see why. But uh, (laughs) So this is Mick Taylor. He was actually the former lead guitarist for the Rolling Stones, so he's pretty good. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mick Taylor, baby. Classic Mick. It's a classic Mick. Yeah. Uh, He also hired a reggae drum and bass uh, (laughs) duo named Sly Um, and Robbie, who were popular at the time. Sly and Robbie. Sly and Robbie. One of them played the drums. Okay. And right. one of them played the bass. They were actual, like, reggae musicians and reggae producers. Okay. Um, this was Bob's idea all the way. Knopfler didn't, he didn't not like it, but he was like, I don't, uh, you know, I don't know what he thought of that. All right, did, did uh, Dylan continue his reggae sound? Did this keep going? This was the only reggae sound. Okay. Because Bowie dipped into reggae a little bit in 1984. That's great. <laughs> I hope uh-huh. it went better for him. So maybe he was inspired by um, it, Dylan's bad decisions. It was very. It, would, it wouldn't be the first time. I would call it like reggae adjacent. It's not. It's not okay. actually sounds like reggae, but I think maybe you listened to this album or tried to. Um, the I did. The very first thing you hear is a little boom, 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 like a little oh, yeah, reggae yeah, yeah. drum. Yeah, film. I do remember that. I did it's the very first thing. I did, not, I did not listen to those closely. And then, and then Dylan immediately starts singing. It's like he's singing okay. within a second of of this album beginning. It's kind I of jarring. Croon. I was kind of hoping the croon would come back. No, the croon's never coming back, Charlie. <laughs> Sorry. Not with that attitude. It turns into a hateful. There's still time. It turns into a hateful growl later. <laughs> he's still young. He's, yeah, he really is. Well, he's really going for it. He's got There's the. Still uh, of, There's still a lot of bad decisions left to be made, Jake. So many. The '80s had just started, really. <laughs> Uh, he's doing like a he's doing like his nasal full on nasal Bowie thing like where he's he can still hit his notes but it's like that nasal voice that he has. Okay. Um, he uh, worked on this thing. He put it out on October twenty seventh, nineteen eighty three. Okay. Um, I, it made it to number twenty in the U S. and number nine in the U K. Okay. Um, it went gold, which is not you know back then that wasn't the greatest thing you could do. Yeah. Um, I will talk later about what I think about the actual album when I give the score. But I have to tell 
I have to tell the little the controversy that this album created amongst Dylan fans forever. This is a this <laughs> so is are a there, are there Dylan albums that did not create controversy amongst his fan base? Probably not. But this one <laughs> this one is a significant controversy among Dylanologists. Because okay, all right. so he went in and he recorded all these songs. There's like 70 bootlegs in circulation out there. Okay. You know, um, I haven't bothered to to listen to many of them. But I'm hoping that that will be the bootleg series this next year instead oh, of whatever it is you actually want to happen. <laughs> I want it to be blood on the tracks. Everybody does. Come on. <laughs> I'm going for infidels. Let's get all 70 tracks. Just hit it. <laughs> Golly. So he he apparently wrote one of his greatest songs ever. Like. Universally among Dylanologists, this is one of his best. This is amongst okay. his best work, like Visions of Johanna. Can we assume that it did not make the album? Oh, you can assume. You can know. <laughs> Dylan was so good at that, writing up well, songs and then not putting them on the stuff he was released to the public. This and this is the this is the prime grade A example because apparently this this song is called Blind Willie McTell. Uh, it's about the South. It's about an actual musician named Blind Willie McTell. Right, I've heard of him. Yep. It does this great like narrative trick at the end where it busts through the fourth wall. It's this, it's just a it's a very well written song. Okay. He tried to record it with the band, all slicked up like all the other ones, uh-huh. and um, you know they had a good bootleg of it. They had, or excuse me, a demo of it. Yeah, yeah. And they had a you know several actual recordings, but Dylan never thought. You know, this is the one. I can't. I can't get this. And then what happened is that Mark Knopfler had to go on tour with his actual band in Germany, uh-huh. Dire Straits. He left and said, "You know, let's just chill out. You can keep working if you want, but I'd love to come finish this with you." Dylan was like, "No, I just signed a, a new contract with Columbia. I have to put out a record every year." Okay. So this is why the '80s were such a trash fire. <laughs> Partly. Because he's just like, uh, how about another live album? And they're like, sure, Bob. Oh, sweet, sweet Dylan. I know. Oh, yeah. Good God. So, Dylan, um, you know, Dylan takes over and he gets a new engineer and he gets a new mixer. Um, and they and he finishes off the album without Mark Knopfler, and he makes okay. all the decisions. And everyone who hears this song, Blind Willie McTell, um, is like, wow, Bob, you know, you're back, baby. You got this. And Bob was, Bob did not want to put it on the album. Everyone that listened to this, including all his handpicked engineers and all that stuff, were like, we, we don't believe that you're not putting this song on the album. This is the centerpiece of a good album. Like, what are you doing? And he just didn't feel like he ever got it right. And so what happened is that, I mean, it was legendary immediately amongst all these bootleggers and such like that. Uh-huh. Um, what happened is that he ended up putting it on his first bootleg series, uh, Bootleg 1 through 3 in 1991. So I can't score okay. this. I can't score this great song. No, but, yeah. but he put it, he put the version on there where it was just him and Mark Knopfler, and Dylan's playing piano, and Knopfler's okay. playing this, like, sweet guitar, like a, you know... And it's a it's it's demo quality. It's just the two of them, but Dylan's like really singing it. And what I think is that this song partly has such an outsized reputation as the great Dylan bootleg that he left off uh-huh. of the album because it's not all slicked up. Okay, it's just like it's more more of an acoustic thing. Like I think that if he had put all of these songs in a setting more like Blood on the Tracks like or that. something like yeah. that, it might have sounded like twice as good or more. So you're saying that you feel like the songs, the underlying songs, are actually pretty good quality? In, in some, and the production arrangements that are the problem on this one? Yes. In some cases, the 
the uh, the songwriting is not very good, and uh, um, he seemed to move away from the explicit religious thing. Um, he was still writing religiously. Like one of the songs is called. Let me see here. I'm going to look at this. It's called "Man of Peace," and the chorus is like, uh, "Sometimes Satan will come as a man of peace." Like it's pretty. It's pretty explicit. Okay. Um, he went to his son's bar mitzvah in Jerusalem. One of his sons. This is Jacob Dylan. Who would this be is like not Jacob. 30, Jacob. I'll be very about the right age. This would be yeah. like thirteen, right? Uh, yeah, he would have. Jacob apparently had already been bar mitzvahed at that point, but that I didn't put that math together. It was another one of his sons, Jesse. He was born I want to say sixty-nine, right? The end of sixty-nine. They were just missing it. Maybe it was the one right after Jacob. I think okay, that was go it. Go on. Okay, um, he was pictured there in a yarmulke and a prayer shawl, and this is okay. the guy who was born again Christian and forsake all right. other religions. All of a sudden, he was uh, he was kind of mixing all this up. One of his songs deals pretty expressly in like Zionism. Um, okay. That one's uh, I can't remember which one that is. I and I maybe. Anyway. Okay. Yeah, I think it is I and I. Um, he had some different themes. He had like globalism, the economy, Zionism. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna score more of this uh, when I when I do the album. Uh, okay. But he's moving on apparently, and people just lapped this up. The critics like Rolling Stone was like, "He's back, baby." Four and a half out of five. Uh, other critics, other critics, pretty much gave it you know, high marks. Like even today on allmusic.com, it's got like uh-huh. a four out of five or four and a half out of five critic score. Okay. Uh, which is kind of crazy. Up, uh, I forgot to look up best albums ever for, for either of these. I did not look at Bowie's, but <laughs> Infidels. Infidels is what Infidels. I like to call Infidels. Uh, it I'm comes in. an album later on called Heathen. So it's right in there. Infidels. Uh, it comes in, it clocks in at a cool number 48 for the year. Number <laughs> 48? <laughs> yep. Bowie's got to beat that then, right? Oh, he'll definitely beat that, for sure. All right, the rest of the year, um, Dylan refused to, uh, or he was done touring for a while. He got really burnt out on his Christian tours. Um, they were kind of, there was kind of some, like, callbacks to, you know, his his uh, legendary European tours of the mid-60s, where people were getting pretty sick of it. You know, like uh-huh. his proselytizing and his righteousness and such, and so they just kind of basically stopped going. And okay, he got tired of preaching every night. Um, so he would return to touring in 1984, but for then, for 83, was 84 he, when he the Neverending tour. No, that was 88. 88. 80, okay, 84. He puts sometime. out just a sneak preview. He puts out a <laughs> terrible live album called Real Live. Oh yeah. Oh baby. So he had an idiosyncratic rest in 1983. He lived um, post his divorce in 1977 and post his, um, you know, I don't know like how much behaviorally his born againness uh, kept him from, you know, having relationships with women and et cetera. He, he had started a series of long-term relationships with his backup singers by this point. Uh, apparently they were amicable. I don't know. He married one of them um, in 1986. We'll get to that later. Okay. Okay. So he's just kind of he, he is, what a year what a year that'll be. He is batching it, he's batching it up on a compound in Malibu is what he's doing. Okay. He he owned it. Uh, he got some renovations done on it. He put uh, up some gates and he had armored guards at the front 
because people were still like trying to break into his house and have sex uh, on his bed and stuff. Sex in his bed is previously discussed. Yeah, unfortunate, <laughs> unfortunate incident. Unfortunately, unfortunately. Um, and he invited some post-punk musicians whose names I don't have written down here to come to his compound and jam with him. Um, none of it apparently was recorded. Uh, okay. but, but he had them come. He he had kicked around doing a South American tour with these three guys um, and just do totally different music altogether. And he okay. he was improvising and writing songs on the fly. Um, he took these three gentlemen to play with him on David Letterman in 1984. Um, but it was just kind of a weird. It was kind of a weird thing for him to do. You know, like I kind of feel like he would have done better playing kind of sort of. Uh, hard, more harder post-punk music with these. Yeah. Instead of going I slick. I kind of see that. Yeah. I yeah. Kinda you know, see that. and in 1984, he did this kind of amazing performance on David Letterman, where he was ripping it up, and he played a couple of the songs from this album, obviously, and that uh-huh. sounded great. So you know, he just made the wrong decision. He he tried to make <laughs> he tried to make a couple videos. He saw uh-huh. he saw MTV and he saw the what everyone was doing there. He released two singles. Sweetheart Like You, oh, excuse me, Union Sundown in October, which is a terrible song and did not chart, and <laughs> Sweetheart Like You, which is a much better song, um, that got to number 55 in December. The The album seemed to be critically okay, but it kind of landed with a thud. Um, so, yeah, he, he ended the year jamming with some post-punkers on his compound in Malibu. Good one. Good one. Good one. Don't want to end our lives. Yeah. Don't we? <sighs> All right, so... <laughs> All right, we read it super long on this show. Yeah, so we are. Sorry. We're, I'm gonna it's your fault. Points here. Are you ready? You got anything? I, it's always my fault. I'll just take it. Take it on. Uh, anything else before we power through it? Yeah, let's, let's, power, let's power the points. Power the points. All right, Bowie. He is a giant square here. So we start with Let's Dance. I'm giving... Now, uh, for those at home, we have a really ridiculously complicated point system that involves negative points if things are really bad. Because we feel like that should count, you know. You can't just like release ten really bad albums the same year and win because you have a lot of many albums. That's right. Count again. So it's a, a negative five to five is our album. I'm doing Let's Dance a one and a half. Okay. It's a decent album. It's not a bad album. What okay. follows is bad, but it's a decent album. But it's just not. It's so slick and so overproduced and so like not Bowie. Just not not much artistic to it. So you can't go higher, but it's okay. Um, Notable on here, he has three covers slash reworkings. China Girl, which is one of the big hits, was originally an Iggy Pop song. Oh, I didn't that David know that. David Bowie co-wrote. It was originally on The Idiot, which was almost all the music on The Idiot was written by David Bowie. Anyway, the lyrics are by uh, Iggy Pop, though. So that's notable. Cat People, or Putting Out Fire, was released by Bowie as a single with Giorgio Moroder. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, that super slick, you know, Donna Summer. He yeah. Her, which with all kinds of people. So they released it as a single for the movie Cat People in 1981. It's either 81 or 82. Can't remember. He couldn't get the rights to it to use it on his album, even though it was his own song. Um, <laughs> so he re-recorded it in a much inferior version. And he did a cover of the song Criminal World by a band called Metro, which I'd never heard, but I listened to the original version. It was pretty good. Okay. So... Wait, one and a half for Let's Dance. Yep. He released Ziggy Stardust, the motion picture, which was a live album from 1973. The way we count points is the year that it's originally released, not the year it's recorded. So this does Correct. count as points for 83. Yep. Um, I'm giving him one point for the album out of a total of a possible negative three to three. 
it's decent but not amazing sound quality isn't great especially the original version the, the mixing was pretty bad but I don't think it was recorded terribly well so they did the best they could and uh, the there was a movie they came out with too it came out on Sweet Sweet VHS so I'm getting a point <laughs> for the movie as well alright he had five singles in 83 yeah the first of the world conquering ones Let's Dance was his just gigantic single Holy Smokes it's a decent song and so I'm giving it one point yeah total you got one. to it's a decent song, and it's so huge. It's not iconic enough to get a bonus point, but right. it's so huge, I couldn't say no. Same thing with China Girl, so huge and a decent song. And My Love, a big song, too, and I actually legitimately, legitimately like that one. I know you do, too. So one point for each of those three. He released a fourth single from the album called Without You that's completely forgettable. Who cares? Okay. No points for that one, but it's not no bad points. enough to data points. The most notable thing about Without You is that the uh, sleeve had a Keith Haring picture on it, an original Keith Haring image oh, wow. for the uh, sleeve, so that's pretty cool. Sweet. They also released a single from Ziggy Stardust the Motion Picture. For some reason, they chose Bowie's cover of the Velvet Underground song White Light, White Heat. Oh, boy. Which Bowie covered that song a million times, including in the 1983 series Moonlight Tour. Okay. But it doesn't, it, and it's fine. It, I don't know why anyone thought, hey, let's release that one as the single. Right, that's like, weird. What were they thinking on that one? Again, not bad enough to get negative points, but it gets a zero on that one. Okay. We have the Serious Moonlight Tour, which is a giant world-conquering tour. I watched a lot of it. It's really pretty good. Um, one of the fun things about Bowie, since he changed his style and his musical style so many times, is whenever he went on these tours, he would completely rearrange the songs and make them. So the Serious Moonlight Tour has got a lot of horns. It's got a lot of energy. Everything's up. And he really recreated a lot of stuff, especially the stuff from the artsy, fartsy uh, Berlin period, which was kind of cool to see that as, like, this like energetic different you know dance music it was very unique i'll okay. give it a point for this tour great then he has four movies the yellow beard and the snowman are just cameos those are not applicable they count for points anyway and then uh he had starring roles in the hunger which was the sexy vampire movie great. uh which makes it sound awful that's all i heard about was the sexy vampire movie going in that's like oh this is gonna be bad but you know let's do it i think it was a pretty good movie <laughs> sexy vampire that's not it's not a good description like it makes you think of there were a lot of those trashy 80s, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example, anything Anne Rice related or, you know, or even like Twilight. Like, this is what I'm picturing going into this thing. And it's not. It's a super artsy, very, very moody movie. Bowie plays, and the vampires are never explicitly mentioned, but it's clearly what they are. Bowie plays this guy, he's, you know, the him and this, and I don't remember the actress's name, uh, are, are vampires. But clearly she's like the main vampire and he's just her companion or something. So he was bit by her or whatever. He got his immortality from her. But it uh, apparently wears out. So he's like two or 300 years old. And he starts aging. So he ages to two or 300 years in the three days, four days. And the makeup's pretty impressive. And Bowie's acting is pretty solid behind it as well. And then uh, then the lady ends up shacking up with Susan Sarandon after oh. that. She becomes the next vampire. Good choice. And it becomes very interesting. Who is not? She's not really wild about becoming a vampire. But it's very, it's super moody and super, like... I know, it's very dark. The whole movie is very, very black, and the shots and stuff are super artsy. So there's not a great amount of plot or characterization, but it's not the trashy, sexy vampire movie that I was led to believe it was before watching it. That's I'm too not, bad. Like, I don't regret watching it. Okay. Uh, Bau Bauhaus is in it for some reason. Great. In the beginning, the band Bauhaus. Yeah. Seeing uh, Bella Lugosi's death, which... Man, they sound a lot like Joy Division sometimes, but that's neither here nor there. 
It's a different uh, podcast. And then we have so. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which is usually considered one of Bowie's best performances, which I would agree with. Uh, it's set during World War II at a POW camp in Java. So he's British soldier. There's British soldiers there. And then, you know, there's their Japanese Japanese soldiers who are watching them. There's kind of like this interesting... It's really looking at the collision between the two different cultures, not just positing the British guys as the good guys and the Japanese guys as the bad guys. It's not that way exactly. There's some really compelling, interesting characters, and Dylan's one of them. And uh, it's it's well worth it. It was it was it's kind of confusing. I'm not sure about all the plot points, and I would I would change some things if you know if I made the movie, but it was well worth it. So he gets a point for that too. So that gives Bowie a whopping nine and a half points. That's a big daddy. That well is done. a well big done. day. Well done. Yes. Let's dance, Bowie. Let's dance. Let's da- I'm dancing right now. I'm dancing I'm, this entire podcast. Let's clap. Tired. Let's clap. Let's clap. Okay. Uh, Dylan had a significantly less pointy <laughs> year. So, yes. So as, <laughs> yes, do tell. Uh, do tell. So his album was uh, Infidels. 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 And uh, he... What he reclaimed on this album was a critical reception, which is great for him. Um, he yeah. didn't. Nice one. He didn't sell very many of them, and he didn't tour behind it necessarily. Um, okay. And I thought it vacillated between you know flashes of his old brilliance for sure. Okay. His his songwriting regained some of the mystery. Like okay. for instance, his single um, that I liked from there was called "Sweetheart Like You." And um, and he made a video for this as well, which was mildly interesting. It wasn't like over the top interesting, but at least they tried, and so that'll uh-huh. that'll go into scoring for it. Um, but it could either be read as like a straight love song, like um, okay. the, the chorus is "Was a sweetheart like you doing in a dump like this?" Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> so is it just like a long pickup line, or what? Or uh, if you read it a certain way, it could be about. Uh, the Christian church. So it's one of those things that he never said anything about it and nobody okay. knows, but there's definitely, it's, it's probably because he had one very clear idea in his brain. And then after it came out, it was like, is it this or this? It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Not saying, <laughs> or, or he didn't, or he didn't give interviews at all. Who knows? <laughs> this is what he's saying on the inside. This is what he's saying <laughs> to himself. Yeah, yeah. What you? Yeah, that sounds much better than whatever I was thinking. But yeah, let's go with that. Yeah. No, there's, there's definitely. definitely Bowie definitely did that too. <laughs> there's definitely something else going on in that song, and so I'd say okay. like half of the songs, there's something else going on, and okay. you don't quite know what it is, and it's very interesting to read into the lyrics. Other ones are really like straightforward and kind of awful. Like um, okay. Union Sundown, which is his other uh, single from that year, is definitely like a takedown of globalism. And what yeah. I, what I understand is, you know, back then that was the, you know, that was the non-Republican point of view. He was kind of a, it was a little bit of a swipe at Reagan, but now okay. it just sounds it's it's really heavy-handed. It's pretty yeah. it's pretty terrible, you know. And there's a couple songs like that, you know. As I mentioned, Man of Peace is I think a pretty interesting song um, about Satan uh, coming as a man of peace. There's there's some holdovers. It's an interesting thought there. It's an interesting thought. It's a bad it's bad production. Like it's kind of a okay. driving yeah, yeah. bluesy rock song, which a yeah. lot of, a lot of these are. And I don't. That so sounds maybe terrible. You, you do want this to be the next big bootleg series with all the demos, stripped down demos coming out of these. Songs, maybe I too. do, man. Maybe I do. I'm still going to be mad I'm just about saying. it. No, you might be right. 
If I get like five blind Willie McTells, I'll be I'll be happy. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh huh. Maybe get a whole disc of different takes of it. Like 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 what doesn't like Rolling Stone have that? My previous Billy version. Yeah, they break it down into each track. <laughs> That's really great. I've listened to that whole thing. Okay. Uh, so I just want to say that it, it this is a critical success, and I don't think that I will listen to it very much ever again. Um, you know, I definitely digested it, and I definitely saw what was good and what was bad about it. But between the production of it, which is so, so slicked up, and that's not my style, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's well done, at the very least. So I think I'm going to be forced to give this a one. Okay. Point zero. Okay. Does that, does that jive? Yeah, I don't know. From what you're saying, it feels like it's okay. Okay, know? all right, yeah. You know, I just don't think I could have given it a zero. Like awful. No, it's not awful. I don't, I don't think it's a negative. I think, personally, I would give it like a negative one or something, if it was just me. But mixed with the critical reception and what yeah, it yeah. did for him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it up there just above, just above zero. At a one. Okay. All right. All right. Singles. Um, go. Sweetheart like you. Um, decent video. Decent song. I'm going to give it a zero point five. And uh, unfortunately, Union Sundown. I just I don't like that song, and so I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it a negative one. It didn't even chart. Okay. So here's what we here's and he didn't tour and he had no other things going on. I have no reason to give him like a special point unless. You know, betting various backup singers is gets you a point. I don't think it does. So, <laughs> I so have the, seen David Bowie produce your album. That's a bonus point right there. Yeah, loses. right. Yeah, <laughs> if only he had said yes, Charlie. It would have been awesome. Or awful. It would have been awfully awesome. It would have been awful. awfully awesome. That's good. Awfully awesome. <laughs> okay, so Dylan's awfully awesome score uh, for 1983 is 1.0 plus negative 0.5. That's going to give him, for the year, a 0.5. Yes, a positive score. <laughs> oh, baby. Well done. Well uh, we're going. starting off the 80s with a real bang. <laughs> uh, Love it. So, Bowie uh, only, only, only has one other good year in the 80s, basically. So, you know, it's, he's going to be. Well, Dylan only does two. And it's 1989, maybe. I have a feeling there are going to be some years in the late 80s where the person with the higher negative score wins. <laughs> I think that's a likely thing to happen. 86, 87, tough times. We're going to call times. those. We're going to call those. Whew. We're going to call those the golf years. You got to get a low. You got to get a lower score to win. That's right. <laughs> Who's got the lower score? Who's got the lower score? Okay, so. We are we're all wrapped up here. Bowie wins nine point five. Bowie wins handily. Yeah, big big time, big, big time. Nice. Well, we're gonna see what happens next time. We're gonna do the year two thousand four. Two thousand four is gonna be an interesting year because neither one of our gentlemen released an album in two thousand four, which we knew we'd have to get to these years eventually. So we thought, well, let's try her out. Let's, let's knock one out. And then we just want you so, all to we want you all to know that after that we're gonna be we're gonna be choosing randomly from a hat. Yeah, yeah. 
see what happens. How? Uh, I want to remind the viewer, the viewers, the listeners at home, <laughs> yeah. to check out our website at BowieVersusDawn.com. Oh, please do. And to know that we have got an ongoing Spotify playlist. Mm. Our handle on there is also Bowie versus Dylan. So we have a customized playlist for each and every one of our shows with a few select cha- tracks from related to whatever we were talking about in that show and, you know, the year of our two gentlemen. So there you go. Do all that. There's your afternoon, everyone. Just right there. Do it. As, as long as this didn't take up your whole afternoon. <laughs> uh, we're still maybe under an hour. Let's, we are. It's fi- it 58 that. minutes. Let's just dance our way right out of here. Jay. All right. Let's dance. In the Bye.